Hey guys, it's Mr. Harmon again. This is U.S. History Notes for Monday, April 6, 2020. Today I'm going to be covering Chapter 24, The Conservative Swing of Reagan and Bush Sr. And we're going to be looking at Sections 2 and Sections 3. So we're going to look at Reagan's domestic policy issues and Bush Sr.'s domestic policy issues. The notes will be posted on Moodle today under the notes section as well as this recording. I will hold office hours from 2 to 3 today on Discord through Moodle, and we are going to have a brief Zoom meeting today and tomorrow for U.S. History classes, just to do a brief check-in and maybe do current event updates. All right, with that, let's get to it. So the first section that we're going to look at is Reagan's domestic policy issues. And we're going to break this down into four areas that are all related to the economy in different ways. Um, That's really the big area that Reagan deals with in his domestic policy is the economy. This is not necessarily because he wants to deal with the economy, although he's fine with it, um, but it's largely as a result of the last few presidents struggling with the economy. Um, So if you go all the way back to LBJ and then Nixon and then Ford and then Carter, all four of them struggled with inflation and unemployment. If you look at Ford and Carter in particular, they also were dealing with production issues in the U.S. And so what we're going to see from Reagan is he's going to spend basically eight years in the White House looking to fix inflation, unemployment, and production, um, trying to kind of rebalance the U.S. economy. Now, there's positives to this and there's negatives to this, but there's four areas we're going to look at. The first we're going to look at is what's known as Reaganomics. Um, Economists also call this supply-side or trickle-down economics, which I'll explain as we get into it. So the major idea that we have here uh, from Reagan is that he's going to try and utilize this idea to fix the economy with a full restructure of how our economy works. Essentially, this will be very similar to what Hoover did in the 1920s and the 1930s, right before we went into the Great Depression. I'm not saying that that means we're going to go into another Great Depression, but look how that did. So anywho, the basic idea here is supply-side economics or trickle-down economics is that essentially the lower class and the middle class getting tax cuts, the lower class and the middle class getting money was not fixing the economy. That's what we had seen coming from Carter to an extent, Ford to an extent, Nixon to an extent, LBJ. They had been looking to try and get the lower class and middle class more money so that they are spending money. If they're spending money, they're going to buy goods, they buy goods, we make more goods, we make more goods, we have more jobs, we have more jobs, we have more money. You know how the economy works, we've talked about this. That had not been working for some time. And so essentially the idea that Reagan has is he's going to try and do tax cuts for the upper class and for big business. Now, to explain to you kind of what's going on here, in 1980, the richest of the rich in this country were being taxed about 70% of their income. Um, Now, these are people that are making more than $107,000 a year or $336,000 a year in 2020. Um, So these are people making huge amounts of money that are being taxed 70%. That being said, from 1980 to 1988, he is going to cut that down by 28%. 28%. So they go from paying 70% in taxes to 42% in taxes. 
That 28% that they're now saving, what Reagan is hoping is that that money is going to trickle down essentially a pyramid of a small upper class, a medium-sized middle class, and a huge-sized lower class. That money's going to trickle down this pyramid to the middle class and the lower class. So if the upper class have more money, they're going to give more raises, they're going to give more benefits, they're going to hire more people, they're going to produce more. That's the thought process of supply side or trickle down economics, which gets nicknamed Reaganomics because how he'll use it. Now, weirdly when he introduces this, it works really, really well. We're going to see that the upper class does reinvest a lot of this money that they're saving into their businesses, into the lower class. People are going to be doing better and things will get better. That being said, Understand that when the government is cutting taxes, the government is also cutting its own budget. And so when they're cutting their budget, they're going to still spend money, which means they're going to increase the U.S. national debt. And we will actually see that U.S. national debt increases more under Reagan than any president we've ever seen in history besides FDR. And FDR was dealing with the Great Depression. So something to keep in mind. Huge, huge debt going up because taxes have been cut so much. That being said, we will see the economy massively rights itself. Inflation will drop, productivity will rise, unemployment will drop. Everything goes right for the most part, and everything kind of recovers for the most part, except the debt. We're going to see the debt will increase 186%. You heard me right, 186% in eight years under Reagan. That comes out to a total sum of about $1.86 trillion. Again, that's the largest that we've had in history besides FDR, who was in the Great Depression and war, and Wilson, who was in World War I. So understand that's a lot of money. Second thing that we're looking at here is a rearranging of the budget. Kind of what we're looking at here is um, fearing kind of how the government was spending money on the lower class and middle class, Reagan's going to look to kind of rearrange where we spend money. Um, so he's massively going to cut welfare, he's going to cut unemployment benefits, he's going to cut social jobs, he's going to cut food stamps, he's going to cut Medicaid and Medicare, and he's going to cut federal grants to college students. With that money that he has saved, he's going to rearrange a lot of that and put it into the U.S. military. So we're going to see that military spending goes from about $260 billion in 1980 to almost $400 billion by the time we get to 1988. That is a 27%, um, that is 27% of the U.S. annual budget by the time he goes out in 1988. So almost, almost a third of our entire budget every single year is going to be spent on the military. Like that's a crazy amount of money we're spending. The third big thing that we see here is deregulation. Now understand that deregulation started under Carter, um, so this is nothing new, but Reagan's really going to mass increase it. Um, so essentially he's going to try and cut out what he calls quote unquote wasteful rules and regulations that hurt the economy. Um, so he's really going to slash things like the EPA and OSHA. Um, these are the programs that our government had created um, to really kind of control safety to make sure that businesses did not do crazy things. Um, where we really see this play out under the Reagan administration is with savings and loan banks. Um, so what they're going to do is they had um, basically programs in place to make sure that they didn't make bad loans, um, and Reagan's going to cut those. And so essentially savings and loan banks can make loans to anybody they want, even people that cannot pay loans back. 
And when loans don't get paid back and banks start to fail on, on having their money, um, someone's got to bail them out and it will be the government of Reagan that bails them out, which means, once again, more national debt. So positive here, yes, because businesses have a little bit more leeway to do things, but negative here because when they fail, someone's got to bail them out and that's going to be the government, which is going to mean national debt. The fourth thing that we're seeing here is new federalism. Um, essentially, this is the idea to try and cut back the federal government's responsibilities and give a little bit more power to the state governments. Um, so to an extent, this is good. The states have a little bit more to do, but to an extent, it's bad. The states have more to do. Um, so understand the good and the bad here. Um, what they're going to try and do is they're going to create what are called block grants, where they give huge sums of money to the to the states, and they hope that the states use that money appropriately, but if the states don't, um, the states are going to fail. And that's not the federal government's fault, they're going to say, that's the state's fault because we gave them money. Um, what we're going to see is most of the states will spend these mo this money on um, broad purpose programs. Um, for example, law enforcement, social services, public health, and community development. Um, that being said, we're going to see if the states do screw up, um, they screw up very badly. Uh, and that will happen with a few states. Um, so it's positive, but it's also kind of negative in that sense. And that's kind of where we see the uh, economic issues of Reagan going. For the most part, they're positive, but understand it's costing money. Alright, so the next section we're looking at here is Reagan and Bush's Supreme Court changes. Um, so kind of what we're focusing on here are some major changes that are going to happen to the Supreme Court uh, in the 12-year period here under these two different Republican um, administrations. Um, so what we're basically going to see is over a 12-year period, five different Supreme Court justices will either resign or will die, which means that Reagan and Bush are going to appoint five people. Um, this is essentially going to be a conservative takeover of the Supreme Court in 12 years. Um, so four of them, for the most part, are pretty non-exciting. They're they're not they're not um, um, crazy by any means. They're not they're not controversial by any means. Um, but then one of them is going to be very controversial, which we're going to get into. Um, so first of all, in 1981, Reagan will appoint the first ever woman to the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, she's fairly conservative as a justice, but she's not too exciting other than that. Um, but it is exciting because we do have a woman for the first time ever on the Supreme Court. In 1986, he will appoint Antonin Scalia. Um, he's pretty darn conservative. Where he will become interesting is not until 2016, so almost 30 years later. And why he becomes interesting is when he passes, when he dies in 2016, um, it's technically President Obama who's supposed to be able to replace him, but the Republicans control Senate and the Republicans will not allow anyone that Obama appoints to get in. Um, they wanted to wait until the next president came in. Um, that happened to be President Trump, and so President Trump got to replace a Republican-leaning judge with a new Republican-leaning judge, um, that being, um, oh gosh, uh, Neil Gorsuch. Um, so anyway, the third one we have is in 1987, and Reagan will appoint Anthony Kennedy. Um, he is more than anybody else that's going to be appointed in these five, the most on the fence, um, leaning both left and right occasionally. He is a bit more conservative than he is liberal, um, but he does tend to vote both ways. 
Fast forwarding here to uh, Bush. In 1990, Bush will appoint David Souter. Um, he's not exciting in any way, shape, or form. He's fairly conservative, but, but that's all there really is on him. Now we get to the controversial person. In 1991, Bush will appoint Clarence Thomas. Now, as a judge, as a Supreme Court justice, he's pretty conservative. Um, not that exciting as a person, as a judge. Where he is interesting is during his Senate confirmation hearings, it was brought up that he might have been involved with sexual harassment while he was the head of the EEOC or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission at the University of Oklahoma. Um, so they bring in the woman that had supposedly accused him of sexual harassment, a woman named Anita Hill, and she testifies in front of Senate, in front of uh, Congress, in front of the media, in front of the whole U.S., and this is nationwide news. Under oath, a woman is testifying that this could be justice. One of nine positions on the Supreme Court might have sexually harassed her. Senate hears the whole thing. She testifies under oath, and then Senate basically says, yeah, we don't believe you, and they appoint in Clarence Thomas. This is almost identical to the 2018 appointment of Brett Kavanaugh, um, who was President Trump's second nominee, who also was accused of sexual harassment or sexual abuse to a woman. She came in, she testified, Senate heard it, and Senate said, I don't necessarily believe it. The bigger picture you need to potentially see here is if these men did sexually harass, they are holding one of nine positions in our top court, which is crazy to think about. Anywho, moving forward here. Basically what we're going to see from this new conservative Supreme Court is they're really going to push back against Roe v. Wade. That's the one big area where they're pushing. Um, so we see two cases kind of pushing against Roe v. Wade. And, and again, to remind you, that's the uh, Supreme Court case that allowed abortion. So in 1989, they will rule on Webster versus Reproductive Health Services. Essentially what they're going to uh, decide here is that states now on their own can make rules against abortion. Now you can't technically make abortion illegal, but you can make it damn hard to get an abortion. Um, so for example, we'll see that some states go down to one single clinic that will hold very odd hours, like they're open from 1 in the morning to 2 in the morning. On Mondays, they're open from 3 to 4 a.m. on Tuesdays, and that's all that they're open the whole week. Um, they'll also set limits on when women can get abortions, if they can get abortions on certain days, what doctors can actually work there. Um, they basically make it impossible to get abortions. They can't make it illegal, but they're going to make it very hard. Second of all, in 1992, they'll have Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And what they're going to um, create in this uh, court case is what they call the thinking period ruling or the grace period ruling. Where they're going to say if you're going to have an abortion, you have to wait 24 hours after your initial visit to the doctor before you can have an abortion. And that's so you can quote unquote think or have a quote unquote grace period to decide if this is what you want to do. And that's kind of where we see the Supreme Court going with Reagan and Bush. And that's the end of section two. I'll start section three momentarily here. All right, so the next section we're looking at is Bush Sr.'s domestic policy struggles. Now, don't get me wrong, we'll also look at successes, but we're first going to look at his struggles. So first, when Bush gets into office, um, he had massively praised what Reagan had done uh, with the economy. However, 
he realizes a lot of what Reagan is doing is impossible to keep going. And so um, at one point he's going to call Reagan's policies voodoo economics, um, kind of calling into question a lot of things that Reagan is doing. Um, and a lot of his base, Bush's base, Reagan's base, people that had voted for him are like, why would you badmouth the guy that you've worked for for the last eight years? Um, but then he also makes promises that, that Reagan had made as well. Um, so like his big promises he's running for offices read my lips no new taxes and like that was <laughs> an insane thing to say given how they're running the economy right now they're going to need money coming in at some point um so anywho when we're looking at the struggles of bush with the economy we're seeing four issues um first of all the massive military spending under reagan continued under bush and the money is getting to a point where it's not needed anymore. We don't need to keep spending on the military. And so we're spending a lot of money that could be spent somewhere else, and yet they don't fix that. Second issue we're seeing is that large businesses in the upper class that had this 28% tax cut from 70% to 42% realize finally now after eight years, they don't have to give that money back to the lower class. They don't have to reinvest that money. All this extra money that you just gave to the very richest of the rich, they can keep that money. That being said, when they keep that money, that absolutely guts this trickle-down economy. It guts Reaganomics. It guts supply-side economics. If the lower class and middle class aren't getting that money, they're going to start to struggle, which we'll see. When they do start to struggle, and when the economy starts to tank a little bit, Bush freaks out, and that gets us to number three. And number three is that he is going to start to increase taxes. Now, not on the upper class, because that's the only system that he knows. He's going to increase taxes on the lower class. Even though he promised he wouldn't, he's going to do it. And so they're not getting money from the upper class. They're now being taxed more money. And because Reagan had gutted a lot of the social welfare programs in the previous eight years, they don't have anything to fall back on to help them. And so this gets us to number four, which is we have a return of huge unemployment and we don't have social welfare programs to try and help the lower class. So understand the crap situation the lower class is in. They don't have social welfare, they have unemployment coming back, they're being taxed more, and there's nothing really there to help them. It's a bad situation. The economy is starting to turn on itself because people figured out how the economy is working. And those are your struggles under the Bush economy. All right, so the next thing we're looking at here are the successes of uh, Bush Sr.'s domestic policy. And, and don't get me wrong, I know we talked about negatives, but he does have some awesome positives here. Um, so we're gonna look at five things here that are pretty positive. Um, the first one we're starting with is what's called the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1990. Um, so what we're going to look at here is in 1953, um, they had passed what was called the Clean Air Act uh, under Eisenhower. And essentially we were looking to try and fix um, how big business was polluting. Um, so when we look at it in 1990 with the Amendments Act under uh, Bush Sr., he's looking to clean the air in five ways. Um, so first of all, he was looking to create a program uh, to try and punish uh, companies that were creating acid rain or to control companies that were creating acid rain. Second of all, they were uh, authorizing a control now for another 189 toxic pollutants. So this would be kind of like following EPA or OSHA regulations, which is something that Reagan had been against. 
Um, third, he's going to try and establish permits for what he calls quote-unquote dirty air. So if you want to pollute, you have to have permits from the government. Fourth, they're going to try and expand and modify enforcement authority um, versus companies that are polluting the air. And fifth and finally, they're going to expand and modify rules around the national ambient air quality standards. Basically saying like you have to produce so much clean air for the amount of dirty air that you're producing, or you can only produce so much dirty air. The big picture that we're looking at here is very much they're trying to reduce pollutants in the air, which is a positive thing overall, you would say. Second thing we're looking at here is the Food, Agriculture, Conservation, and Trade Act of 1990, which will be simplified into what's called the Farm Bill. Essentially, the goal of this bill is they are looking to try and stimulate the farming industry in a number of different ways. Um, so some of the ways that they're looking to fix this is they're going to try and set prices in production um, for farming to try and make farming more money. Um, one of the things they're going to look to do here is they're basically going to tell farmers, like, yes, you might have um, 100 different fields, but if you produce food and crops on all of those fields, um, and everybody does that in all their fields, you're going to see the prices will drop. So what we're wanting you to do is produce on maybe like 50 out of 100 of those fields leave 50 of the fields completely empty, and then we will pay you to not touch those fields so that we don't have too much being produced. Um, so it's a weird system that they're creating, but they're looking to basically control how much is being produced, and yet they're also wanting to take care of the farmers. It's kind of an interesting, weird program. The other thing you're going to see that comes from this is they're gonna to look to reach out to the lower class here a little bit, um, where they're gonna try and use a lot of the food that farmers are producing um, in the food stamp programs. Um, trying to introduce nutrition to the food stamp program. So kind of a cool little addition there. Third program that we see is the Crime Control Act of 1990. Um, this becomes an interesting and controversial one um, for a couple of reasons. So basically he's looking to restructure uh, criminal punishment, victim protection, protection, and then a few different areas as well. The three big things that we're seeing coming from this, maybe four depending on how you wanna look at it, is first of all, they're going to try and um, fix the roles of productive protecting victims of child abuse, sexual abuse, and victims' rights in general, which across the board, you would say that's awesome. That'd be fantastic if we could protect, protect um, uh, victims of child abuse, sexual abuse, and, and protect victims' rights in general. Second of all, they're going to look to uh, try and increase punishment on drugs and drug use and, and um, drug sales and anything drug related. Now this dates back to Reagan and his uh, war on drugs, which we didn't really get into, um, but we're kind of touching here with uh, Bush. Um, so you're going to see massive increases in sentencing for drugs and it's for very minor offenses. So like you're caught with, with a single marijuana cigarette and you're getting five years in jail. Like it's crazy punishments, but they're trying to really reduce um, drug use and drug sales in the country. And this is kind of in reaction to the mass increase in cocaine in the 1980s in the US. The third thing we're seeing is there is going to be an increase in punishment for some white collar criminals like banking fraud, um, but you're also seeing an, an awesome increase in punishment for sexual abuse, for child abuse, and then for violent crimes, especially with guns. Um, so some positive things there, but also some kind of negative things there. Um, the act will be considered partially negative um, for not going far enough in punishing some criminals, but going too far in punishing others. Um, so what I mean by that, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is you see minor drug offenders being punished very hard, um, but then 
perhaps the white collar criminals like bank fraud not being punished hard enough. Um, but overall, it's seen as kind of like a positive change, I suppose. The fourth one we're looking at here is the Civil Rights Act of 1991. Essentially, this act was created in response to the Supreme Court, who had made an earlier ruling that tried to limit the rights of employees to go after their employers for discrimination. Um, so they're kind of looking out for the little guy here, essentially, with the Civil Rights Act of 1991. Um, so this is going to allow for employees to sue their employers and get a trial by jury on discrimination claims. Um, so this can include any of these different things, um, emotional distress damages. Um, it can include um, sexual harassment. It can include discrimination harassment. It can include racial harassment. Um, it can include several different things to try and protect employees versus employers. That being said, they are going to limit the amount that a jury can award for discrimination claims, and it's going to try and limit how you uh, make these claims because they don't want people going crazy making claims, but they also do want to protect people's rights. Um, so this will become a rather interesting act given the appointment of Clarence Thomas, who we talked about earlier, um, to the Supreme Court, who had been accused of sexual harassment himself. Um, and, and that will come back up whenever they're talking about passing this in Congresses, should Clarence Thomas have been appointed to the Supreme Court. But I digress on that situation. We already talked about it. Um, the fifth and final one we're looking at here is the American with Disabilities Act. And by and far, I would say this is the best, this is the coolest of any of the five we're looking at under Bush. Um, so this is a comprehensive change to the laws, protections, and rights of Americans with disabilities. Um, so this will be very similar to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 with race and gender, um, where it's basically going to say businesses, the government, and the public now can no longer discriminate against any people at all that have disabilities. So like race and gender can't be discriminated against, now people with disabilities can't be discriminated against, or you can face legal repercussions for doing so. Second of all, we're going to see that this uh, now puts a requirement in place that all businesses and employers must provide reasonable accommodations to employees with disabilities. Um, so this would include like having to have ramps, uh, including having um, um, uh, like elevators, uh, including having a way for people to adequately and safely do their work. Um, this will also put a requirement in place that all public accommodations are now accessible for people with disabilities. Um, so. For example, a very good one that I have for you right now is that in uh, Jerseyville, they are currently replacing a lot of the um, sidewalks um, so that they are ADA um, uh, accessible or ADA um, uh, hitting the ADA regulations. Um, so a lot of the sidewalks were not wide enough for people in wheelchairs to necessarily uh, safely and easily get up them. And so they are now replacing a lot of the corners so they are more uh, widely open and sloped so that uh, wheelchairs can get up them. So they're ADA, um, ADA uh, certified. So anywho, overall what we're looking at here is Bush for the most part does a very good job with some domestic policy, um, but he also very much struggles with uh, the economic success that Reagan had. And by 1992, we're going to see that the domestic success that he has does not necessarily measure up with the voters to the economic problems that he was having. And we'll talk about that in uh, the next chapter. All right, so that's uh, where we're going to end it for the day. Again, this was chapter 24, sections 2 and 3. We looked at Reagan's domestic policy and Bush's domestic policy. Again, this is U.S. History Notes for Monday, April 6, 2020. 
I will post the notes under the notes section of Moodle, um, as well as this recording. I will hold office hours from 2 to 3 today on Discord through Moodle, and I will hold a brief Zoom meeting with you guys to go over current events um, on Moodle from 9 to 10 or from 10.15 to 11, uh, depending on which classes that you are in. I guess for the Tuesday group, um, it'll be 9 to 10, 10.15 to 11, or it'll be the afternoon hours, which I don't remember off the top of my head. All right, guys, well, have a good day. I'll talk to you hopefully later today or tomorrow. Um, stay safe, stay clean, wash your hands, and I'll talk to you later.